Good afternoon, everybody. This is another edition of the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPLA.com as well as St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. Glad to be with you on today, the 13th day of December 2018. I hope everybody's preparing for their holidays and is enjoying their week so far. A handful of stuff we're going to get into today. And obviously, we just got back from the baseball winter meetings in Las Vegas. A little bit of a shorter trip than we've done the last couple of years. And obviously, a lot of good stuff there, um, you know, in regards to just seeing things going on and just being associated with the business. Um, you always thank, you know, the baseball winter meetings and Major League Baseball for, you know, the credentials and everything going down there. Uh, and it's funny that after the baseball winter meetings, and obviously there's a lot of stuff, you know, in my head that I want to talk about, and we will touch on, I promise, we'll talk some baseball today, that... You know, something sticks in my head, and the thing that I want to talk about the most has nothing to do with baseball. And you think about it over the course of time and what has happened in the last, I don't know, since the beginning of the season, since the football offseason, and the way it's set up, and, you know, now the Pittsburgh Steelers on their way to the playoffs and are doing so without Le'Veon Bell and will be doing it, anything that they do or they accomplish from this point forward will be without Le'Veon Bell. And it's amazing that the one thing that stands out is this one side of an issue and this one horrible take that I saw on this. And you think about Le'Veon Bell. He's not going to be playing this year. He's going to, just give me one second. He, he's he's going to sit this season out, become a free agent at the end of the year, and he'll sign with a new team. Pittsburgh Steelers have been doing fine without. You know, they put in James Conner, a running back. He's getting the job done. They're they're in a spot now where they're going to be, you know, probably just as good as they'd be without Le'Veon Bell in the mix. So, I look at what happened years ago when I was a kid in the '90s. So, being a, a, a young a young male in the '90s, you know, you get into rap music, the beginning part of the decade, and of course, there's N.W.A. You know, led by Ice Cube with Dr. Dre and Eazy-E and MC Ren and DJ L. And they're, they're putting a take out there that hadn't been taken before in regards to police brutality, which you can make a relationship in football now to. And how all, you know, the, the, the police are targeting them, which is the truth, which has been happening for years. And they're the first people to really speak up ab about it. They end up going national. Everybody knows who they are. And they, there's a little bit of a dispute between Ice Cube and his producer over how much he's being compensated for his contribution to the group. And as time goes by, Ice Cube ends up leaving NWA. Um, he has no hard feelings. He leaves the group understanding uh, the reason that he's doing it. And NWA moves on without him. NWA releases an album, and all they end up doing is knocking Ice Cube, essentially calling him Benedict Arnold. Now, the Pittsburgh Steelers, in a similar situation, you know, aren't the reason why Le'Veon Bell's leaving. Pretty similar to Ice Cube leaving NWA. He didn't leave NWA because he wanted to do something better. Maybe he had a little bit of interest in wanting to do something better on his own, but he didn't do it in spite of NWA. Le'Veon Bell didn't hold out for and not sign his franchise tenure tender to disrespect the Pittsburgh Steelers. He didn't do it to leave the Pittsburgh Steelers. He did it because he had to and hopefully over time the NFL and its players could come to an agreement where they better 
rectify this situation so it doesn't help, it doesn't hurt other players down the road. So there's a correlation right there. So you got the Pittsburgh Steelers who got to play on, just like NWA. They didn't have they they could have made a choice to just quit because Ice Cube quit, but they still had a responsibility. They still still pull all their hard work into getting themselves nationally known and had a responsibility to produce more records. The Pittsburgh Steelers in 2018 going into 2019 have a responsibility. They're getting paid to compete at the highest level. They have the you know the obligation to their fans and to their contracts to go out there and play the sport, put themselves in the best position to win a game, and then get as far as they can, hopefully win the AFC North, get into the playoffs, and make a run for the Super Bowl. They've got an obligation to do that, whether Le'Veon Bell is part of that team or not. So whether you want to blame Le'Veon Bell for the way the situation's handled or blame the NFL, the fact is still the fact that the Pittsburgh Steelers have to perform. They have an obligation to play their games. James Conner is next in line. He has a good season. Obviously, it's a per, it's it has a lot to do with the offense and the structure and the way it's set up there. And he goes out there and performs. The Pittsburgh Steelers are on their way to winning the AFC North. They're on their way, hopefully, to be in a good spot in the playoffs, make a run, and maybe get to the Super Bowl this year. So, Mike Tomlin, the head coach, which you know he had, he's got the ability to say something maybe off off the mark every now and then, but he's asked probably the same question that he's asked week in and week out. He's trying to prepare his team for a football game, and he's continuously being asked questions by the media about Le'Veon Bell. His answer says that he has to focus on the players that are on the field, prepare them to play the game. He can't worry about Le'Veon Bell right now. So if you're out there in any way having a, I guess, a uh, devil's advocate type of take on it, and you want to take the other side, and this is the other issue that I have, because you talk about the sports media the way it's set up. You have so many shows on top of each other, and it's just a group of maybe a, one player, one analyst, and maybe you throw a woman in there, whatever whatever it is to do cater to your setup. And you're all bashing the same issues, talking about the same topics, mentioning the same type of takes on the same things that are going on. So somebody's going to play, like I said, devil's advocate, and try to have a different kind of take. Try to have something and stand out in a different way to make a different point. Now, this take that was made on, I believe it was an ESPN show, but as soon as I heard the take, I'm like, I can't listen or watch this anymore, was to compare Le'Veon Bell to being that girlfriend that decided to leave a boyfriend after a certain amount of time, and the Pittsburgh Steelers were to be that boyfriend. So the Pittsburgh Steelers, for some reason, are going to miss and love what would have been that ex-girlfriend and beg for them to come back when the girlfriend has decided that she's not coming back. Le'Veon Bell has already drawn his line in the sand. The Pittsburgh Steelers, up until the very last moment, tried to get him to sign his franchise tenor, tried to set up something to where there'd be some negotiations for his contract. I don't know how far it got because those reports aren't out there and the facts aren't set right before. But the bottom line is Le'Veon Bell made the decision to leave. So the Pittsburgh Steelers 100% have to go on as if he's not going to be part of the team. Similarly to the way NWA had to go on assuming that Ice Cube was not coming back to the group. 
So we started out with that. We're going to talk a little baseball, baseball winter meetings. Obviously, a lot of stuff going on in the world of baseball. Not enough to factor in anything that is making enough of an impact as it applies to baseball. And we, we looked at it last year with the offseason. And you could talk whether there was collusion involved, whether there wasn't collusion involved in regards to the free agents that were out there. A lot of it had things set up where you could simply talk about the amount of value that was put on the home run. Guys hitting 240. And I said this a bunch of times. You, you got guys hitting 240 with 20 or 30 home runs, and they're sitting out there in free agents waiting to get this really big-term contracts with these high-paid salaries. And teams, through their analytics staff and their research department, are determining that it's easy to duplicate those numbers. It's easy to get a guy that's hitting 240 that's going to strike out over 150 times to hit 20 home runs. Why are we going to give that player a three, four-year contract and pay them 10, 15, 20 million dollars a year? It doesn't make any sense. And from a business standpoint, you understand it. And that's why anybody who wants to say that there was collusion involved has to understand that there really wasn't collusion involved. It was conventional wisdom. It was anybody with a half a brain in their head understanding that that's going to be the way it was going to be handled. That you're, there's not as much of a demand for a 240 hitter that's going to strike out 150 times. And God forbid, if things work out best, he'll hit his 20 to 30 home runs. You're not going to pay that guy that amount of money. It's just not good business. It's not a good business sense to do that. And all in all, every team decided to hold off on signing said free agents. Now, you have a little bit of a different dynamic this offseason because I think there's a lot more teams that are interested in winning right now. We talked about the difference between the teams that were going for it in 2018 and the teams that were tanking, the Miami Marlins of the world. You look at the way the offseason sets up now, teams like the Chicago White Sox, the Cincinnati Reds, the Tampa Bay Rays, uh, a handful of teams that normally would have been considered not in the mix, maybe taking another year off, are all of a sudden impacting the free agent market and the trade market. So you see a trade yesterday like Tanner Roark going from the Washington Nationals to the Cincinnati Reds. The Cincinnati Reds expect to be much better this year. They expect to at least be a 500 team. And if they don't show set improvements, it will be considered a disappointment. They're not in rebuilding mode anymore. You got the likes of perhaps the Seattle Mariners and maybe the Arizona Diamondbacks taking a step back. The Baltimore Orioles maybe taking a step back. But really outside of that, maybe Toronto. I don't know. Cleveland Indians, are they gonna are they gonna unload Corey Kluber or a, you know, Trevor Bauer. If they do that, then they're going to take some steps back as well. Edwin Encarnacion, of course, talked about maybe going to the Tampa Bay Rays in a trade. But there's only a handful of teams, them and the Miami Marlins, that are in full tank mode. So I would have expected this week to see a lot more action going on. And maybe the baseball winter meetings in Las Vegas, the way it's set up, are maybe a springboard for some future actions. You had a couple signings last night. Joe Kelly signing with the Dodgers. Jairus Familia signing to come back with the Mets. So maybe some groundwork is set up. But it seemed like this past week, there was really only focus on one thing. It was the market for JT Romuto, the catcher for the Miami Marlins. And I think it's a very interesting thing because you can think about it from the amount of teams that are involved, and I do think there's still about five or six teams that are literally still in dialogue with the Miami Marlins about JT Real Muto. 
the price that's set that Mike Hill and perhaps Derek Jeter, if he has any influence or is involved in the negotiations to trade him, uh, are, are setting a pretty high bar in regards to what they're looking for in return. You can make the example of them talking to the Atlanta Braves and asking for Ozzie Albies, them talking to the Los Angeles Dodgers and asking for Cody Bellinger. You know, them talking to the New York Mets and wanting a combination of Ahmed Rosario and Michael Conforto. Now, all those prices, as they're set, may seem like it's a little bit too much, but you do for a second have to look at things from the Miami Marlins' perspective. They had an offseason last year where, to their own you know, blame, decided to handle the moving of some of their contracts that they didn't feel like they should pay anymore. The Gene Carlos Stanton deal was essentially just given to the New York Yankees for nothing. The returns that they got for Christian Yelich, who, by the way, won the National League MVP last year, and Marzell Ozuna and Dee Gordon were not very much. You're not expecting the players that were given back or traded for back to the Miami Marlins to be, you know, perhaps down-the-road stars. So the Miami Marlins did that to themselves. They have themselves to blame for that. They could have waited on some of their players if they didn't get the right return that they were looking for. Every single one of those players were under contract. So they didn't have to trade them at the point of the offseason that they did last year. That was their decision. And to accept such lousy returns for the players is all on the Miami Marlins. Not on the teams that went out there and took advantage and traded for them. So now they decide this offseason that their one prize player is JT Realmuto, the catcher, and they're going to ask an arm and a leg for him. Now, you would expect any team that was negotiating with Mike Hill and the Miami Marlins last year to say, wait, now all of a sudden you're going to ask for our best players when you're essentially just giving players away last year. So that's bad on the Miami Marlins end. So I don't understand or I get the fact that any team is, that's going to be asking for JT Realmuto in a trade is not going to want to part with all of a sudden cornerstone type of players when the Marlins last year were negotiating deals where they were just giving players away for their salary and what they make. I mean, they gave away Giancarlo Stanton for nothing. They gave away Christian Yelich, a guy who ends up going to Milwaukee and winning the Most Valuable Player Award in the National League. So now all of a sudden, the Miami Marlins want a boatload. They want a ton for JT Realmuto. Now, I understand teams not wanting to adhere to that price, but I do think there has to be some negotiation that's involved because the leverage that the Miami Marlins have, they're not necessarily able to leverage one team over another. They would be if they got the Braves to say, hey, we'll give up Ozzy Albies, or the Dodgers say, hey, we'll give up Cody Bellinger. The Mets say, hey, we'll give up Michael Conforto. If those teams were willing and able to adhere to what it is, that the Miami Marlins were asking for, then they have the right to use that type of leverage against other teams. Right now they don't. Right now they don't have a single team that's willing to pony up the price. And right now it seems like, and you see it very often in baseball and in other sports, when it comes down to a trade or a destination or a you know the realization that a trade will be made and said player will be moved from a particular roster. You get to a point where you got the team or two and the team that has the player, and it's time for them to iron out the best deal that they could possibly make. 
And I don't know exactly what that would be. Let's say it is the New York Mets, and you see that, that the Mets are the, mo the team that's probably the most tied to JT Romoto. If the Mets want to make a deal, they will have to part with something. They'll have to part with one of their younger, everyday players. Mets fans may not like to hear that. And you hear the other side of it where you say, hey, why would you give up players for a catcher when you could go out there and sign a catcher? Well, here's the reason right now. You pay 12 to $15 million for a catcher. Understand that the New York Mets run completely different than the other team in New York that plays baseball in the American League. The Mets, unfortunately, whether you like it as a fan or not, are operating under the guidelines of a budget. Now, I'd like to see them go out and spend you know, money like it was going out of style. I'd like to see them have a payroll that's over $200 million. I'd like to see them make sure that every single position they have on the field is the most accomplished player and the most compensated player. If it was possible, I'd be in favor of that too. But the Mets are operating under a budget. And no matter how many times you tell certain fans this, they're just not going to accept it. So you have to understand that the Mets are going to have to be creative, pretty similar to the way that they were when they made the trade for Robinson Cano and Edwin Diaz. They have a budget. If they go out there and spend the 12 to $15 million on a catcher, that's going to sacrifice the amount of money that they could spend on another relief pitcher or a center fielder or another player that's going to be on their wish list in regards to the way that they're trying to improve their roster. So, similar to the Cano and Diaz trade, you understand that the Mets are, and Brody Van Wagenen, the general manager, is going to try to be as creative as possible to want to make moves without upping the payroll to save that capital to be able to invest in other players. In other words, if the Mets were to simply go out there and sign Yasmani Grandal, or they were to go out there and sign Wilson Ramos, that would mean that Juris Familia, who they just signed, and Edwin Diaz would be the Mets' bullpen additions this offseason. And you'd have to accept that. You have to say, hey, they went out there, they signed the catcher, they didn't give up anything to get him. They still hold on to Ahmed Rosario, they still hold on to Brandon Nemo, but they have to go with, let's say, a Drew Smith or an Eric Handhold or some other guys in their farm system to fill out their bullpen. Now, the Mets at least the sense that you get from the aggressiveness of Brody Van Wagenen is the fact that he, he is interested in filling as many needs as possible with as many good players that can help. And if the Mets end up deciding that they're going to trade for a catcher, give up an asset, even if it's an asset that you as a fan may not like, it will give them the ability to perhaps sign themselves a center fielder like an A.J. Pollock and sign themselves another reliever like an Andrew Miller and maybe use whatever money is left over to find a stopgap to perhaps play shortstop if they decide that Ahmed Rosario is the player that they end up trading. Now, the Mets do have their top prospect in their entire league, uh, in, in, in an entire organization, Andres Jimenez, who is only 19 or 20. He's a shortstop. So I think if the Mets decide to part with Ahmed Rosario in a trade for JT Romuto, they would have to do it understanding that they feel that Jimenez is going to live up to his top prospect stats. Now, listen, you got to, in this case, trust your scouts, trust your analytics staff, trust the people that are involved 
in the evaluation product, uh, process of your top players. And once you do that, you either come, you come out with one of two conclusions. Either that Ahmed Rosario down the road will make into a player that's good enough to be the starting shortstop for the New York Mets for the next five years or later, or he's not. And if you're deciding that he's not, then that would give you every reason to hold on to Ahmed Rosario. But if you feel like, based off of his development defensively, and he's already been graded as a major league ready defensive shortstop, if you feel like he could grow with the bat and be an impactful player for your roster down the road, then Ahmed Rosario may be the player that you part with to get yourself JT Realmuto. Not just to do that, but to free up some extra payroll space to be able to sign yourself an AJ Pollock and an Andrew Miller. Because if you go out there and you pay for a catcher, I promise you, the Mets, because of the budget that they're set, and we don't know exactly how much money that they have to spend. You don't know exactly what Brody Van Wagenen and Jeff Wilpon have discussed, but you're getting a sense because of the creativity that Brody Van Wagenen is using. He's trying to add as many pieces as he can to improve the team. He's understanding that he doesn't have the ability to sign a catcher and a center fielder and another relief pitcher. So, once again, if that's your thought process, if you're saying the Mets should just go out there and spend and add those three players and move on, then you're not understanding the fact that the Mets are not equipped, at least at this very moment, with the ability to add all three. They added themselves Robinson Cano and Edwin Diaz. They signed Juris Familia. They probably, from a free agent standpoint, have the payroll and the budget to add two more impact players. And like I said, if you sign the catcher, are you going to go with Juan Lagares in center field? And Brandon Nimmo and Michael Conforto in your corner outfield? Is that a better offensive team? Because you got Yasmani Grandal? Or because you got Wilson Ramos? Would you trade for JT Romuto to allow yourself to sign AJ Pollock and Andrew Miller? These are all things that have to be thought about and discussed. But I tell you, looking back at the baseball winter meetings, you, you sense that there is a lot more dialogue involved. You know, you got the Dodgers that are looking to potentially trade Yasiel Puig and potentially trade even a Cody Bellinger at the right price. I mean, his name has been floated out there. They'd like to unload Matt Kemp's contract. He's got one more year and 20-something million, which, by the way, the Dodgers have been stuck with this contract twice. So I don't feel sorry for them whatsoever. You know, Matt Kemp was good in the first half last year. He actually had a pretty good year overall, but he certainly isn't the player that should have won the MVP the year Ryan Braun ended up winning it. So you got them discussing possibilities. Maybe Homer Bailey and his bad contract goes back to the Dodgers. But the thing that interests me the most is the amount of teams that are in business now. Because if you go back into DeLorean 365 days ago, you're talking about a very frustrating time in baseball because there was only a handful of teams that were willing to do what they needed to do to compete. There were so many teams that were saying, hey, if we just take the year off, if we go back and do what the Houston Astros did a series of years ago and just stink and just lose 115 games every year or aim to do that and settle for 110 losses if you can. It's a part of competition that's disgusting. It's disgusting from a fan standpoint. Certainly any team, any 
buddy that throws money out there to buy tickets or merchandise for that team should be refunded. And it's also not a good business practice. How do you sell yourself to your players, the players that are there, that you don't care about winning? Or you're willing to look and develop young players at the expense of winning? And like I said, going back a year ago, I was disgusted. I'm a little more encouraged now. Because I think you can look at teams like, you know, in the NL East, the Phillies and the Braves, are going to be right up there with the Washington Nationals. The New York Mets, who the general media basically told, hey, you guys should shut it down, trade all your assets, and quit for five years. The Mets and Brody Van Wagenen have decided that they're not going to do that. The Cincinnati Reds are expecting to be better. The San Diego Padres and the Chicago White Sox are expecting to be better. In fact, if you're in the American League Central and you talk about the possibility of the Cleveland Indians maybe moving Corey Kluber, maybe moving Edwin Encarnacion, maybe moving Trevor Bauer, you understand why there's probably an opening or an opportunity in that American League Central. You know, the Royals, the Twins, the Detroit Tigers, teams that probably on a given season would have very little to play for, all of a sudden see the gap between the Cleveland Indians and them being decreased a lot if these players are traded. And you say, hey, if we just make a couple subtle moves and go out there and win a couple more games than expected, all of a sudden a couple good games turn into a couple good months. And we'll be talking about whatever story of whatever team it is that's exceeding their expectations. And maybe you take advantage, you know, take the bull by the horns and say, all right, this will be the trading deadline that we're a little more aggressive than we would be because of the position that we were in. But that's what baseball creates. You have teams that are going in all sorts of directions, but teams that could certainly put themselves in a position to want to expand, want to get themselves a little bit better, and want to be a little more competitive. So that's basically what I got out of the winter meetings. And, you know, it's nothing that I'm breaking here. But I'm very interested in this season. And as we get, obviously, through the next couple months and teams fortify their rosters, you know, we'll start to get a sense of what teams are a little bit ahead. The National League East looks like it's going to get even better than it is right now. The National League Central with the Cardinals getting Paul Goldschmidt. The Cubs with needs that they're going to address. The Milwaukee Brewers with needs that they're going to address. That should be a competitive division as well. The AL Central, you know, looks a little scary. But even though it looks scary, the door is probably open for the, the Tigers and the White Sox and the Royals and the Twins to maybe gain a little bit of ground on the Cleveland Indians. Because the last couple of years, it's essentially been the Cleveland Indians in a series of rebuilding teams. Just like prior to that, it was the Detroit Tigers and a series of rebuilding teams. Now, Minnesota taking some steps forward, hiring themselves Rocco Baldelli. They're excited about it. The Chicago White Sox, maybe from a payroll standpoint, have any ability to go out there and sign themselves a Bryce Harper or a Manny Machado. Those things are all good. And I would encourage those teams to want to get in the mix and maybe make a run at it this year. And I just want to see the teams that are quitting I want to see historically bad teams. The Miami Marlins, if they're not going to make any effort, effort to upgrade their roster, I want to see them lose 125 games. I want to see them become the 1899 Cleveland Spiders. I want them to be the 1962 New York Mets. I want them to be the 2003 Detroit Tigers. I want them to have a season that's so historically bad that we can talk about the last 150 years in baseball history and where it ranks. 
and the Baltimore Orioles, if they want to go through their rebuild, they should just get rid of every bit of talent that they have and maybe see if they can lose 125 games. And maybe you have the Orioles and the Marlins in a battle for the seller, in a battle to have the worst season in the history of Major League Baseball. Because you know what? At least that'll be remembered. If they go out there and lose 106 games or go out there and lose 111 or 115 games, it's going to be forgotten about. Nobody's going to care about that. You know what? If you're going to lose, lose in style. And that's what I want to see happen. Just a reminder that this copyright and broadcast is authorized under internet rights, granted by the World Wide Web and is solely for entertainment of our audience. Any publication, reproduction, or other use of the pictures, descriptions, and accounts of this show without the express written consent of the past ball show, JohnPielli.com and JohnPielli LLC is prohibited. Any commercial or other use of the program, such as by charge and admission for its showing, is similarly prohibited. So I did have to address this thing that we saw this past weekend. And I'm sure everybody heard about the ex-UCLA basketball player that ends up being entered in a competition or whatever to win a car. If she makes a layup, hits a free throw, a three-point shot, and a half-court shot, she'd get the car. Now, to make a long story short, it was understood that she wasn't eligible to win the car. So it's not... This isn't a situation where UCLA did anything wrong or decided at the last minute that they were going to deprive this person of the opportunity to do it. This was a person that was probably just trying to see if she could do if she could do it. She obviously you could tell by her skill set, you know, her form with her free throw, the way she hit the three pointer. You could tell that she played basketball before, and even even taking a shot, you know, the half court shot. You know, the half court shot is a gamble. You could throw yourself twenty balls across the court, and if you do it enough, at least you can get the right form and put the ball elevated in the right way where you got a chance. If the wind hits you right or you, you get the right blessing from the Lord Jesus Christ, the ball could possibly get close enough to the basket that it could go in. And that's what you're doing on a half-court shot. Let's be serious. There's nobody out there that is draining half-court shots left and right. I mean, Steph Curry can hit, hit shots from just about anywhere, but you don't see him going to the half-court line and, and throwing a perfect form and hitting, you know, whatever it would be, 50 or 60-foot shot. So this woman understands that she's not going to win a car, but I, I still think, and as much as I thought about it, and I tried to say, well, if she knew she didn't have a chance to win, it's not really that big of a story, but it does create bad publicity. So why, if you're UCLA, when a woman clearly states that she's a former basketball player, clearly makes it understood that she's ineligible, why even have the car as a prize? Because you know who gets deceived? It's not the school. It's not the person that's competing. It's the people that are in attendance. And let's be serious. These things are created for what? For the fans. Now, if you have a random raffle and one fan gets that ticket, gets a chance to do the layup, the free throw, the three-point shot, and half-court shot, there's a chance that anything can happen. And it, it, it also incorporates the fans to think, hey, the next game that I go to, if my ticket is randomly selected, then I'll get a chance to do this too. Why have something like that that's almost like, it's almost like staged by a ringer? Why have the car as a prize if the person that is competing for the car isn't eligible to win it. 
all it creates is bad publicity. And the fans that are coming there are just like, all right, what did I just see? That's great that she won. Congratulations for hitting the shot, but what? She's not going to get the car? Wait, because she's not eligible? Why would you go through with something like that? I don't care if it's UCLA or anywhere. The goal for events like this, especially stuff that's done at halftime or after the game, is to engage the fans. It's to make the fans want to spend more money on perhaps another ticket down the road. And that's the only reason you do it. You want to engage the crowd on something that's special there. So I thought it was a terrible job. Like I said, I don't feel bad for the woman. I don't feel bad for UCLA. But all it does is it just creates bad publicity when there's no need to create bad publicity. Just a reminder that Castrol provides maximum protection against viscosity and thermal breakdown. This is the Passball Show brought to you by St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. Just a little recap of the show today. We talked about Le'Veon Bell at the beginning, and we were making a comparison, or at least I was, between Le'Veon Bell and Ice Cube. And the group NWA, how Ice Cube left the group because of a contract dispute or a dispute over whether Ice Cube was properly being compensated for what he was contributing to the group. Pretty similar to Le'Veon Bell. The Pittsburgh Steelers used the franchise tag, which is something that is collectively bargained. And it's understood that the Steelers have the right to use the franchise tag on any player of their choosing. And they can use it on the same player for two years in a row if they want. Look at Kirk Cousins and the Washington Redskins. That second year, he was granted free agency. He signed a deal with the Minnesota Vikings, and it turned out to be a great... Oh, wait. didn't really turn out to be that great of a deal. Whole nother story, obviously, with the Minnesota Vikings. But, you know, Ice Cube decides to leave the group. The group's still got to go on. They're not going to quit making music because... Their lead vocalist, or the guy who is contributing the most to the lyrics of their songs, leaves the group. So they go on without them. Obviously, if you followed NWA, you know we started out with too much cargo. So I'm glad we got rid of Benedict Arnold. The Pittsburgh Steelers got the right to look at Le'Veon Bell the same way. They have the right to say, hey, even though you did what you felt like was right for your family, what could be right down the road for similar running backs that are in a position down the road, you essentially are Benedict Arnold because regardless of your reasoning for doing what you did and not reporting to the team and not signing your franchise tenor, you abandon your team, a team that was forced to have to go on without you. And anybody in the media that is continuing to ask Mike Tomlin questions about Le'Veon Bell could not be any more out of touch with the game and the situation and everything that's going on. So you can't say that the Steelers should be begging Le'Veon Bell to come back. You shouldn't expect Mike Tomlin, if he's asked about Le'Veon Bell in an interview, to say anything other than what he said. And that's the fact that the players that are on the team and the players that he is coaching are the ones that he's focused on. And by the way, James Conner was pretty much an MC Wren. MC Wren did a great job being the lead vocalist in it for NWA in their last album or so. And they all ended up having solo careers. Obviously, the story is played out pretty well in the Straight Outta Compton movie. But the Pittsburgh Steelers are trying to do what NWA did. 
they continued to produce good music without somebody that, with all due respect, even though there was extenuating circumstances, made the decision to not be there. And Le'Veon Bell did that. And if his teammates and his coach want to call him Benedict Arnold for that, they got every right to. It might not be completely justified. You can understand in a deep part and the reasoning why Le'Veon Bell did what he did. Running backs don't have a long shelf life in the National Football League. Look at Earl Campbell. Look at Jim Brown. Look at guys that got out when they possibly could. Running backs don't last into their 30s, which is part of the reason why Le'Veon Bell was not getting that long-term contract, or at least at the terms that he was looking for. But once again, he had the choice to either sign the franchise tender or not. He chose to not do that. If his teammates feel like that he betrayed them, it might not be personal, but he did in a way, and they have to move on. James Conner did a great job. He's done a great job this year. You, you would think that Le'Veon Bell will still play because they're getting the same results out of that same offense. Talked a little bit about the baseball winter meetings. JT Realmoto, the Marlins at some point will have to concede their high demands, but if you're the Mets, you have to make the decision. You get to sign a catcher for, like fans keep saying, just money and sacrifice another possibility to add another free agent. Essentially, if you sign Yasmani Grandal or Wilson Ramos, and please, I hope they don't sign Martin Maldonado, if you sign one of those two catchers, what can you do without? Are you okay with an outfield of Juan Lagares and Conforto and Nemo, like we mentioned before? Are you okay with just Jerry's Familia as a compliment to Edwin Diaz in that bullpen? Because I think they should do both. They should add themselves a prolific outfielder into their mix. They should add themselves another reliever to go with Diaz and Familia. And if the only way that they can do that is if they make a trade for the cat, for a catcher. And unfortunately, I know we live, we think money is just printed, and we think every team is just going to go out there and spend the most money it possibly can. It's been stated. You could be, you could know the New York Mets for so long as they have existed since Fred Wilpon and Nelson Doubleday bought the team in 1980. And they've made it very clear, even the days that Nelson Doubleday was still alive and still involved in the business, that they were going to operate under a budget. And their budget, obviously, just like anybody else's has in Major League Baseball, with the increase in the amount of money that players are making, has gone up. But they're not going to go over that budget. So you got to ask yourself, if you're a Mets fan, could you part with, perhaps, an Ahmed Rosario or a Brandon Nimmo as a headliner in a deal for JT Realmuto, or would you rather just sign a catcher and not get that extra reliever that they need or not get that extra outfield bat that they need? That's your, you know, pretty much your prerogative as a fan. The half-court shot... And, you know, the UCLA player, the ex-UCLA player that wasn't eligible to do it, if you weren't eligible and it was very clear beforehand, then why were you wasting the time? Why don't you give that ticket or that opportunity to a fan in a crowd and give them a shot to do it? This is the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPLA.com as well as St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. Glad to be with you. Uh, we're going to cut the show short. Probably towards the end of the week, either tomorrow or Saturday, we'll get back on with you. We'll talk about stuff going on in the world of baseball sports. 
and unifying America. So I hope everybody enjoys themselves on this Thursday. God bless you. And as always, I'll see you on the other side.